0: Good evening, glad you're glad you're here this evening as we gather here midweek to uh, pause our week and get into uh, God's word. We continue tonight with journey through the Bible. We're in Galatians chapter four tonight. We're going to be looking at in a few minutes. Um, We're going to worship God through song this evening as well. Things going on. But uh, let me pray for our evening as we begin. God, we thank you that we can come into your presence at any time because you're always with us. But, Lord, we also um, treasure these times when we come together with other believers and spend some time uh, worshiping you together corporately and digging into your word. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way here this morning. We thank you that we are your children and that you love us dearly. Reveal yourself to us this evening. Father God, we want to see your heart in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's sing together.
1: Won't forget the wonder of how you brought deliverance the exodus of my heart You found me You free. Held back the waters for my release. i my peace you found me you freed me held back the waters from my Cause you stepped into my Egypt and you took me by the hand and you marched me out in freedom into the promised land, and now I will not forget you, God. I'll sing of all you've done, and yet is swallowed up forever by the fury of your love. Cause you stepped into my Egypt and you took me by the hand. You marched me out in freedom, into the promised land. And now I will not forget you, God, I'll sing of all you've done. Tell this swaddled out forever by the fury of your love. your great love forever. Praise the Lord evermore. I will sing of your great love forever. Worthy of every song we did ever sing.
0: that we're children of the Lord. So this song, next song just simply says, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I'm a child of God. You unravel me
1: with, with a the melody. melody. You surround me with That's a song of deliverance.
2: From my enemies
1: till all my fears are gone, I'm no longer faith to fear I am a child.
0: It's because of that that we have been adopted into your family that we have become your kids we are so grateful for all that you've done that you took us out of our old life you put us into the new life bringing us into the kingdom of God and so we thank you for the new life that you continue each and every day to work in our lives to continue to mold us into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we dig into your word, Lord Jesus, please reveal yourself. God, we desire to know more and more of how and what you've done for us by making us your kids. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: You may be seated. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Galatians. We're going to actually review a little bit in in chapter 3 and then on into chapter 4. Some of the things that I want to encourage you, we finished our study through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. So this Sunday we're going to start a new sermon series and study called Word of God Speak. And so for the next four weeks we're actually going to be taking a look at how to hear the voice of God. How to hear the voice of God, how to hear the voice of the shepherd, how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, and how to hear the voice of God through the Word. So we'll have four weeks of, of studying that, and then we'll do Mother's Day, have a very special time with that. And then the series after that is a series that I'm working up called Spiritual Resiliency. It's kind of a hard word to say, but it, it really is how to how to build up a good spiritual resilience uh, in preparation for trials, in preparation for difficulties, and working through that. And then we'll have Father's Day. And then after that, then we're going to be starting a, uh, through, the, through the book study of the book of Joshua, that's going to take us about 22, 24 weeks or better, um, and working through that. So we got a lot going on. Uh, and then also just a reminder, uh, we are less than a year away from going to Israel So if you're still looking at going, you want to get signed up and get plugged in with that. And there's a number of other things that are happening that that God's going to be just doing some amazing things. We're excited about it. We're going to pick up here in Galatians chapter 3. And as Paul is dealing with, kind of remind you of the background, he's writing this letter to the church of Galatia that he helped start in his first missionary journey. And and what's happened is this group of, of Judaizers are coming in behind him and they're challenging his apostolic authority. They're going in there and they're saying, nah you know, Paul really doesn't know what he's talking about. He he you know, yeah, he's 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 leading you to Christ, but there's much more to to faith than that. Because if you really want to be, you know, a, a child of God, if you really want to be belong to God, then you've got to really be a Jew. Now keep in mind These Galatians were Gentiles. They weren't born into Judaism. They weren't born under under the Abrahamic covenant. And so they received the the transformation of the Holy Spirit in their life. But there's another group that was coming in and says, you need more. And they were trying to add to Paul's gospel. And they were doing that. And they're like, let's add to it. And then let's discredit Paul in the process of that. And so he's having to write this letter to correct their theology and to to undo some different things. And he does it. One of the best ways that you can um, correct somebody's theology or what they're thinking is actually put a mirror up in in what they believe and how they first came to faith. Every single one of us runs the danger from time to time. Of straying away, don't we? We get to a place where we kind of stray, where we wander, and even some will backslide. And there's always that danger. I remember in teaching kids that um, that your Christian journey is like trying to roller skate up a hill of ice. Once you get your momentum going, keep going because the minute you stop, what are you doing? You're going to slide all the way down to the bottom and then you're got to start all over again and so we really want to we really want to uh, keep that momentum going and so Paul is going to be bringing them back and we're going to review a little bit starting with verse 19 of chapter 3 and really bring about this this challenge against legalism people were coming in with this legalistic concept and construct of salvation so he starts out with verse 19 to 25. He says, why then the law? Is it added because of your transgression and ordained through the angels an agency immediate until the seed would come whom his promise has been made? And now a mediator is not for one party only, but for God only. And the law is contrary to the promises of God. May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then the righteous would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture was shut up in everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under custody of the law, being shut up in the faith, which is later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So, we, we start out, and he's, he's asking these three questions that are in it. What's the purpose of the law? Is the law in conflict with God's promises? And what's the benefit of the law? So these legalists were coming in, and they're saying, you have to have the law, and you have to obey the law perfectly within this. Now, as we learned a couple weeks ago, is the law bad? No, the law's good. Because I wouldn't have known that I was a sinner unless the law was there. You know, if it didn't say, thou shalt not kill, then I think killing is okay. But the law says, you shall not kill. You shall have no other gods. You'll remember the Sabbath day. We, We learn these things. Why? Because we need to be told what's right and what's wrong. And when we violate the law, it reveals to us our sin. And I would not know that I was a sinner unless there was a standard that said, this is what sin is. So the law is good because it puts a mirror up to my life. Now, we don't always like mirrors. I wake up in the morning and I say, who is that old guy? Because somebody, somebody has hijacked this body. But the reality is the mirror tells the truth. And I have to adjust to it. Well, the law tells the truth. I have to adjust to it. I have to say, yes, I am a sinner. Good, that's the first step. Because if I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I can recognize my sin and ask for forgiveness. So I need it. We need the law. And we need the law to understand our our sinful state before the Savior. And if I understand how wretched I am in my sin, then when I'm given the gift of grace, then I am blessed by it. Grace is so much better when I understand it's God's unmerited favor that's been given to me. I didn't deserve it. Is there anybody that's perfect? No. No one's perfect. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And so the law was given to reveal that spiritual condition, which is the first step to reconciliation. If anybody, you know, if you're you're here and you're, you're listening online or whatever... You understand the first step to sobriety is to do what? Acknowledge your addiction. The first step to getting sober is to realize what is the condition that I'm in and that I need help and to acknowledge that help. And I need it. When I got sober many, many years ago, I I, I looked at my condition and said, I can't do this anymore. God help me. And he did. But I first had to acknowledge my condition and not excuse it and blow it off. And so the law was given to reveal our spiritual condition. And the law was in the Old Testament to be a babysitter. You say, well, how does that work? Jesus hadn't come yet to die on the cross and atone for man's sin. So God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and the law that was all attributed in Leviticus and, and also in Deuteronomy. To give the law to babysit the nation of Israel. To try to keep them as much in line as they could. Until Jesus would come. And so it was there to kind of keep them in line. in somewhat of a sense of righteousness. And so he did this. He says, here's the law. You violate the law. You sacrifice this animal. Here's the law. You violate the law. You give this grain offering. Here's the law and how you live. In conjunction with one another so you don't destroy each other and you can live in community. And so within this, the problem is the Judaizers and the Jews had elevated the law as a means and method to become right. Well, if I worship the law in a means and method to become right, I don't need Jesus. Because I got the law. And, the, and, and that becomes problematic. Problematic. Because the law can't save. It can only reveal sin. So within this, the law is incapable by itself of providing life. It only, it only reveals our sin, but it can't save. It only reveals where I'm at, but it doesn't provide the path to heaven. And it's only the grace of God through Christ that provides that path. Jesus says, I am the what? The way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, but how? By me. You don't see Jesus saying, by me in the law. Do you? No. By me in good works. By me in going to church. No. By me. And so this law reveals man's condition. And, and basically, the law puts you in prison. How does that work? Well, the law always reminds you of what a dirty, rotten sinner you are. The law keeps you confined. If you're under the law, aren't you always worried about breaking the law? And you're always scared. Am I going to step too far? Am I going to do the wrong thing? I've been to Israel multiple times. They have, they have on Sabbath certain things that can only be done certain ways. When we go next year, we're going to see it. They have, and and it's a great place to go, and they worship well, but all the shops shut down, they stop cooking, and they make the elevator stop like on every floor, which is a pain, because they strain at these things not to break the law. It's a prison. There's no freedom in it. But grace unlocks the prison. Grace unlocks the prison because Jesus fulfilled the law by dying for our sins. And by grace we're saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When we think about it and we talk with people today, have you ever talked to somebody and shared with them, hey, you know, have you ever thought about your relationship with God and, and maybe go to church? and I don't want to become a Christian because they have too many rules you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this and you can't do that and they're all focused on the things you can't do. But think about all the things you can do. I can experience love unconditional. I can experience the presence of my creator. I don't I can experience a a, a joy fulfilled that I'm not trying to find joy in a bottle or or in a drug or or in this relationship or some other thing. I can just be and all the things I can do. You know, and, and so within this, this grace, it unlocks this jail and it sets us free. Not just to the bondage of sin, but grace sets us free from the guilt of sin. Think about that. Guilt, no more. Grace sets you free because God declares you clean. God declares you sinless. You say, well, what have I sinned? You're still sinless. What if I mess up? That's okay. Because Jesus died for all your sins, past, present, and future. And it unlocks this prison. You're not bound to it anymore. But the problem is in, in the Jews' construct, and in our human construct, we think we need to add to this grace gift, don't we? I, I, I got to add. It can't be that easy. It can't be that easy. I need to add to it. I need to do something else. Where can I write a check? Maybe God will love me more. Maybe, where can I do this? Maybe God will love me more. And the answer is absolutely no. You can't add to it. You're saved by grace, you're set free of guilt. The law was only given as a tutor or a disciplinarian. And just like any tutor or disciplinarian, the role is really hard. And the role is to mature people. I grew up and in, in went to school in a Lutheran school. My cousins went to school across the street in a Catholic school. And we would share stories. And they wanted to come to my school. Because in their Catholic school, they had nuns. They had nuns with rulers. And they couldn't do anything. And, and, and I remember my cousin Scott one time, and his, his knuckles were all red one day. And we would get together and play football in the park because our schools, like I said, were just across, and we'd, we'd hang out and whatever. So what happened to you? And he goes, nun, whatever her name was, I don't even remember her name, so-and-so. And I go, what did you do? She got me mad. You, got, you didn't. Oh, yeah, I did. I talked back to the nun. I said, what happened? She broke three rulers over my knuckles. I thought, oh, praise God for Martin Luther. He set me free. <laughs> Will you look at this? This idea of grace. Not only is this the grace from law, but also the last part of this, this is 26 to 29 to sonship. You look at this and he says, For you, because faith has come, we're no longer under the truth. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, and you do, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Verse 29 is key because what he says is... These Jews that are coming to the Gentiles saying, if you want to belong to the promise of Abraham, you have to obey the Jewish law. Paul says, no. If you are in Christ, you are part of the promise already. In Christ. Because in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, there is no free. Because Jesus sees everybody the same. His child. He doesn't make a distinction. God doesn't look at you and go, I'm sorry, you don't have enough money to get into the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry, your skin's the wrong color. I'm sorry, you're the wrong gender. I'm sorry, you're the wrong... That is not true for God. In Christ, you are all children of God. And He loves you the same. And so within this, we see this this sonship that is afforded to us through faith in Christ, not through the law. You cannot earn your way in. And so within this, believers have been adopted into the family of God, become children of God, and heirs to the promise of Abraham. Which was all of God's intention to begin with, because when he made his promise to Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you. And through you will be many nations. That was God's intention. To be able to save many. And so we have this righteousness. I love what verse 27 is, and and, and I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but for if you are, or if you were baptized into Christ, which is this outward identification, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. Hear me clearly on this. When God sees you, He sees you through His Son Jesus. He doesn't see you apart from Christ. He sees you through His Son Jesus. Because you've been placed into Christ, into His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So the next time somebody tells you you're not good enough, tell them they're a liar. Not only am I a child of God, but I am secure in Christ. What does that mean? That means that God has placed you in Christ by grace. And if it's a work of God by grace that He's placed you there, not by your own works, then there's no way you can work your way out of it. It's a divine act. You know what they call that? Eternal security. You don't ever lose that condition. Nor do you lose that salvation. And if it's been completed by Jesus at the cross, then who am I to think that I can add to that or make it better by obeying law? I can't. It's foolish. It's a weight and a barrier that, that God never intended, but it's a religion of man. So he goes on into four. As he continues in his argument of this salvation... Is not gained by merit, but solely by God's sovereignty and by His grace. We're going to see the difference between being a, a child and an adult, and a son and a slave. Look at verses one through seven of chapter four, as He depicts what the difference from slavery to sonship. He says, "Now I say, as long as heir the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave." Although he's the owner of everything, but he's under the guardians and the managers until the day set by the Father. And so also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that, there's that henna clause if you take notes, it's a purpose clause, so that he might redeem those who, who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, first conditional clause, yes, you are, then an heir through God. Paul wanted to do one thing, make sure they understand what their spiritual condition is. How powerful is doubt? Is doubt powerful? Sure. Do you understand that doubt is the basic tool that Satan will use to get you to question God? How do I know that? Go to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, in the first sin, Satan came and he said, Did God really say? And that opened up the whole can of worms. Doubt is this this tool that Satan uses time and time again because if he can get you to doubt the word of God, then you doubt God. In this, Paul's is his point is this transition that takes place. There is a period of time when the slave is being mastered. If you look at verses one through three, he says, "As long as the heir." is a child, he doesn't differ from all the slaves. Why? Because they're a kid. So if you have a slave, he's controlled by the master. If you have an immature child, he's controlled also by the parent. Can't make any decisions of their own. Why? Because they're immature. They're, they're immature. They, they just don't know what they're doing. And they're gonna, they need a guardianship. How long do they need a guardianship? Until the father says they're mature enough. So they set a date. In Jewish culture, it's it's bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. It's a time when they say, yeah, you're of age. When you've become an adult, usually 13 and 14. I don't know many 13 and 14 year olds that are adults, but I tell you what, in Israel, it's a big thing. You know, again, when we go, we're going to see like 18 year olds running around with, you know, <laughs> semi-automatic guns and I, t- I'm, I feel safer in, in Jerusalem than I do in Portland. You know why? Everybody's got guns. It's super cool. Although it's really scary when you got this little 18-year-old girl that's in the mall shopping, and she's got she's locked and loaded with a gun on her back. And you're like, okay, we're good. They've proven themselves mature, and they've set a date and say, you are mature. But until then. You're immature and you need to be taken care of or under guardianship. And the law is that guardian. The law guides us and tells us what we need to do. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law guides us in this guardianship and keeps us from going over the edge. It supervises us, it checks us, it keeps us in, in this check and balance, this morality, this ethic that's there. And it doesn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile, the law was there and it's true for us. Paul is pushing back against this, this process though because here's what they were doing. They were doing what, what we see in churches today. Have you ever heard of uh, syncretism? It's where you take two opposing faith systems or faith structures and you try to bring them together as one. And so there is a religious syncretism that Paul would push back against. He would push back against, um, well, in the Old Testament, it was against religious syncretism between Jewish faith and paganism. What were they always trying to do? Bring idols in, right? God says, no other gods, no other idols. And so they kept trying to do that, tried to synchronize paganism And Judaism together, so you were a Jew that was worshiping idols. That didn't work out so good. God sent them into captivity in Babylon because they kept blowing it. In the New Testament, what ended up happening was religious syncretism where they had Christianity, the the New Covenant faith, the way, and they were trying to synchronize it with Judaism. And they were trying to bring the law and grace and faith together and synchronize it. Paul's pushing back against that. It's a challenge for us because in our day and age there is this attempt to synchronize that which is secular and that which is holy. Can we synchronize that which is secular and that which is holy? Absolutely not. Can we synchronize in that which is a humanistic perspective and a divine perspective? No, but they're trying to do it all the time. How many churches are trying to be socially equitable in the gospel. Let's teach a social gospel so that everybody that comes to your doors are going to feel good. That they can feel good about themselves. And we'll accept everybody the way that they are with whatever conditions that they are and whatever practices they are whatever behaviors and whatever feels good and then we'll just kind of worship this divine entity together. There's a local college today that is practicing religious syncretism where they're taking Christianity and Buddhism and trying to make them equal. Is there a problem with that? Absolutely there is. And they tried to take Christianity and New Age theology at one point in time and try to bring them together. You can't do that. We have to push back against it. So Paul... He's fighting the fight in the culture, saying you cannot synchronize these things. The law had a time and a place and a purpose for all who are not saved. But at the appointed time, when you move from the law to grace, when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, you were moved out from underneath that that tutor. And so within this, we take a look, even if you look at verse 3, it says, So also, we, while we were children, we are held under bondage under the elemental things of the world. So the question, I, I thought about this as I'm looking through this, what are the elemental things? One of the best things you can do to find the answers for a question is let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it, as Paul would write to the Church of Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of rather than according to Christ. So what are elemental things? Well, he says it right here. Philosophy, empty deceptions or a worldview, or traditions of men. Those are three of the elemental things. Or the world things. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit to the decrees such as here they are? Elemental things do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments. And the teachings of men. What were the elemental things? The law. Because the law is elementary. We send kids to an elementary school. Why? Because they needed to learn the basics. I wish our schools taught more of that. And focused on that. Why do they need to know the elementary things? So that they can have the elementary foundation to move on to higher education. Right? We call it higher education. And so within this, I'm not going to send a first grader to go take a a, a trigonometry class, am I? No, they need to know the elementary things, and they need a teacher to teach them these things. Reading and writing and such things. We need to teach our kids the elementary things of Christ. So as they grow old, they can go into the higher education of theology and understand these things. Paul says, okay, now that you're in this relationship with Christ, why is it that you're going back to the elementary things as the the primary? What would you think of a person that had a Ph.D. in physics? Go back to a first grade class and say, I want to study ABCs and I want to study my addition and subtractions. That's where I want to go. Dude, you got a Ph.D. in physics. What are you doing? Well, you know, I need to revisit the elementary things. I need to be in that place in use math. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. Once a person has moved past the elementary things, it doesn't make sense to go back to them. Once you've been set free from the babysitter of the law and understand... Yes, this is my sin, but Jesus paid the price for my sin, and by faith I've been saved through that. Why do I want to go back and try to be under the bondage of the law? I shouldn't. Because there's a different spirit that is in me, that's guiding me. I've matured. How do we know that? Because in verses 4-7 through it says, When the time came... But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those that were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. There is a point in time when Jesus came. And everything that was Old Testament, while it has great value, all of that changed because Jesus paid the price for all of those sins. At a point in time, God sent forth His Spirit to you. And you said, yes, Lord. I am a sinner because I know I'm a sinner because of the law. And and God sent His Spirit to you. And you recognized the Son as your Savior. And when the fullness of time came in your life, you were saved. Now what? Now I move forward to the mature things. And my condition changed From being one who was under a babysitter to now being a child of God. I'm no longer a slave bound under the law, but I'm a son of God. A child of God. Question. Is God's timing perfect? Is His wisdom perfect? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why did Jesus come when He came? Because it was the perfect time. It was the time that was fulfilled. Mark 1.15 saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's that perfect time when He was born of a woman, born under the law, to pay the penalty for our sins. In Matthew 5.17 says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but fulfill them by becoming a sacrifice in place of men. And in Galatians 3.13, it says, And Christ redeemed us from every curse of the law, having become the curse for us, for it's written, Curses everyone who hangs on the tree. We just got through celebrating that. And from resurrection day on, the solution for man's sins is always available. And you can be saved and filled with the Spirit and be adopted. But everybody prior to that could only be babysat by the law. So the the people that receive this letter and us are being sent a message by Paul and says, Look at now that you're saved, don't go back. Don't go back to the thing that, that wouldn't save you. But for somebody who's not saved, what's the first thing that I should share with them? The fact that they're a sinner. Bring out the law. It's okay. But if you're going to bring out the law, then also bring out the solution. You have to bring both. Because that's the hope. If you're going to bring out the fact that they're in bondage, then also bring out the key that unlocks the bondage. Which is the grace and the benefit that Jesus offers. Jesus was born of a woman. Under the law. So that we could become children of God. Things change. Romans eight fifteen. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you may cry out, Daddy. Daddy. So when you feel guilt over your sin, what should you do? Confess it. What well, is confession? It just means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Yeah, I blew it. God, will you forgive me? Yes, my child, I will forgive you. I've already forgiven you. You're my son. You're my child. The other thing that is interesting about this is that Paul would write this as we have access to God. We don't have to go kill an animal. We don't have to shed blood or any of these things. The law keeps us under this bondage and this fear. Many of you have have grown up in authoritarian homes of fear. I grew up in one. Scared when my dad would come home, and I I was a jerk. I, I'll, I'll confess, I was I, I was rotten. I did things to my sisters and my brother, my sister and my brother, that I never should have. And my mom didn't know what to do with me. When I was six, she would lock me in my bedroom, put a lock on the outside of the door to keep me in. I did. And and invariably, she would say, go to your room and wait for your dad to get home. Now, I know that probably doesn't happen a lot in houses today. Well, back in the day, it was, wait till your dad got home. My dad would come home. I'd hear, and I'd be sitting in my room. And I'd hear the door shut. And he would say, what did he do? And there would be some under-mumbling. My dad had this thing where he would take his belt off. And he would snap it as he would come down the hall. I got PTSD from it. it just and, and I would get a whooping. And it wouldn't be a little bit of a whooping. My dad had this, this ability to be able to, and he was tall. He's like 6'2, long arms. And he could wield a belt, but he would have a conversation during the whooping. And every word would be a smack on that. What did that develop? Fear. Fear. And in that, there was no relationship. I didn't have a relationship with my dad until I got saved. And I was in my twenties because he was an authoritarian. And I love my dad; he's with the Lord now, and, and it's all good. But I can tell you, when when you live under an authoritarian, there's bondage and there's fear. And so, living under the law is bondage and it's fear because the law brings judgment and suffering. And Jesus brings freedom and forgiveness. And grace that removes this, this, this hold where we can cry out, Abba, Father. And so we can, we can, as a son of God, as a child of God, we should never impart upon holy God the same way that we relate to maybe an earthly father or somebody that's been abusive or some of these other things. Do you know God loves you? And He is approachable at any time. And Romans 5.8 says that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus died for you. In your worst possible condition. You'd say, well, I don't love me. God says, that doesn't matter. I love you. And I've demonstrated it for you. And you always have access to me. Within this. And how do we know that? Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that is in our heart. So i got to get out of my head and get into my heart and say, Holy Spirit, let me live in the presence. Let me have access to my dad and call him Daddy. And so the Father had planned to send the Son and to redeem us and to give His Spirit to live within us so that we would have access to Him. And so he warns them in verses 8 to 20, don't turn back, please. He says, however, at that time when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear that perhaps I have labored for you in vain. So he looked at this, this next section. And in this next section, he, he's pleading with them. You can almost see Paul on his knees just begging them within this. And say, don't turn back to your paganism. There will be a time. When, when your faith, when you have doubt. And it's at that point you've got to check yourself. That you don't backslide. When you say, I don't know. I don't know, God. Have you ever met somebody or, or worked with somebody and you poured your life into them? Just dumped your life into them? And discipled them? Worked with them? And then they turned their back on God and they turned their back on you and went back into the world. I gotta tell you, as a pastor, that is the most disheartening thing that that I experience. When you pour your heart out into somebody, and then because you question yourself, you go, What did I do wrong? What happened? And you feel bad and you feel personally responsible. What should I have done different? Why did they, was it me? Was it something that happened? And it just breaks your heart to see people walk away from God. It's happened in this church. It's happened in every church I've been in. And, and, and I can tell you at times you go, bag it, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Because as a pastor and as a, as a leader, you pour your heart into people and they turn their back. And Paul has poured his heart into this this group of believers, these Galatians. And they're turning their back on him. But more importantly, they're turning their back on God. Paul's concerned with these Galatians that they would not only turn their back, eventually turning their back because of the Judaizers, but they'd go back to worship Zeus or some other idol. And the paganism and back into the rituals and all of these things. I can tell you this. One of the things about backsliding, backsliding really reveals the depth of faith. It really does. It really reveals how deep an individual's faith is when they backslide and how far they backslide. And and within this, it's a huge challenge. And because they go and they they, they leave the living God and they start worshiping the gods that are not gods at all. Paul says this. He says they go back and they worship the gods that really aren't gods. They're worthless things, elemental things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, he says this. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet... For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things we exist through Him. What are some of the elemental things that people turn back to? Old lifestyle, the bottle, the drugs, sexual immorality, whatever. They turn back to these things. And it breaks your heart. And within this, Paul's trying to put this mirror up and he says, once you've had the real, why would you go back to the fake? Once you've had the genuine and really tasted of the genuine, why would you go back to the fake? Once you've had filet mignon wrapped with bacon, smoked perfectly, eighth inch smoke ring around the meat... Would you go eat Alpo, dog food? It doesn't make sense. Once you've had true love, why would you abandon true love and acceptance to chase hurt and heartache in the world? Why? doesn't make sense. And so he's putting this up and he says, look it. Why would you, who was a slave made free, go back and become a slave again under the law? You wouldn't. And it's a challenge. Paul felt personally that all of his hard work in bringing these people to a successful relationship was a waste because of their lifestyle. In fact, Peter writes about it in 2 Peter 2, 20-22. He says, "...for if after they've escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome..." Note, "...the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It's happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. What is Peter saying? It would be better for you not to have known Christ at all than to taste it of the holy presence of God and to do this and to go back. What's one of the reasons? Why? You'll always live in regret. You'll always live in guilt. And you'll never come back to this place where you go, man, I don't think I can come back. And there's always going to be... It's really, really hard for someone who is truly born again to go back and live in the world because you've tasted it been there and you'll never find that happiness you'll never find that joy that is there and Paul begs them and admonishes them in verses 12 to 15 he says I beg you brethren come become as I am for I also have become as you are you have done me no wrong but you know that it was because of Bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you in the first time and and that it was a trial in you and my bodily condition. And you didn't despise or loathe me, but you received me as an angel of God and as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out for me your eyes and given them to me. So Paul in, in verses 12 to 15 is now begging them, don't abandon your faith. Paul's given the logical argument. He said, don't do this from logic. He's brought out this this reasoning, this analogy. He says, please don't go back. Martin Luther refers to this section as the, the tears of Paul in a commentary that he wrote in 1535. Paul's begging. Have you known people that are turning their back on God? And, and, and you're just talking to them and you're begging and you're pleading and you're talking and you're encouraging them and you're, you're hanging on them, please don't walk away from the Lord. And it just seems like they're, they're oblivious and they just keep going. My sanctified imagination is like Paul's got a hold of the, the people in Galatia and they're dragging him down the road as they're walking away from God. He's, please don't go within this. And he's explaining all of these things. And, and it's interesting that these Gentiles are putting themselves under Jewish law after they're converted. Paul says, no, don't go back. I was a Jew under the law, and now I became a Gentile like you. Become, And I was free. I'll be free. Being in Christ means freedom. It is joy. And it's joy because you can sit back and you say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for always loving me. Thank you for always forgiving me. Thank you that you will never turn your back on me. And even if I am faithless at times, you are always faithful. You are my loving Father. I was talking with my nephew the other day. And he's had some really hard times in his life. He said, Uncle Kerry, you know what I've learned this last few months? And I said, what's that? He says, I have a Heavenly Father. It's always there. That I can talk to any time. He was telling me about how his... His dream to go into law enforcement, he just finished his time in the military and because he wouldn't take the jab. They put a a mark on his record that said that he was defiant against authority. And when law enforcement decided to do a background check on him, that's what came up. And they said, you'll never work in law enforcement. Stellar record. And he says, I was mad. I was mad. I said, you have right to be mad. I was mad at God. Why would you be mad at God? Because he let it happen. Okay, fair enough. But what if God in the sovereignty had a different path for you? What are you doing now? And he told me, I'm studying psychology because I want to go into high schools and become a high school counselor. And help kids. Fair enough. So instead of putting them in handcuffs and throwing them in jail, you're going to keep them out of it, right? And these kids that you're going to impact their lives are going to come back and, and learn from you. It's not what you thought. It's what God determined. So let God be in charge. And then we had the conversation about prayer. He says, yeah, He says, I can talk to my Heavenly Father anytime. And that's a good thing. Satan wants to destroy and divide the body of Christ. Satan wants you to get you to doubt God. Satan wants to add all of these things that are a burden to you. And God is doing nothing but pulling these burdens off of you. Satan wants to cause divisions. He wants to develop fickle faith. You know what fickle faith is? Fickle faith is I believe what I believe and you believe what you believe. And because you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe, we can never get along. In all of these things. We had a great time this last Friday. Eight different churches at Scapoos High School. I want you to wrap your head around that for a minute. Eight different churches. Two different languages. Different denominations. All believing in the same foundational faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. On a public high school campus. And we packed the house. Got to build a bigger boat. Satan lost. Why? Because we set aside these denominational differences or preferences or worship styles or whatever. And we worship the Lord Jesus and came together. And Paul is asking this church to do the same thing: keep the main thing, the main thing. Paul goes on in verses sixteen to twenty and asks, "So what did I do to offend you? What did I do? Did I become the enemy?" Verse sixteen: by telling you the truth, and they eagerly seek you commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you won't seek that you seek them. But it's good always to be eagerly sought in the commendability manner, but not only when I'm present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you, but now, and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul now is, from a personal note, saying, am I your enemy for being honest? Sometimes the truth will hurt. But just because the truth hurts, should you keep the truth from somebody? No. You should tell the truth. But you should tell the truth in love. Proverbs 15:5 says a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regar- regards reproof is sensible. Amos 5:10, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Should we speak the truth? Yes. In love always. Ephesians 4:15, but speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head even in Christ. What if my truth offends you? It may. What if God's truth offends you? Now you're going to have to deal with it. Why? Because God's truth is the only truth. So what should I do? I should not share with you my truth. I should share with you God's truth or the word. And then you got to deal with God. I didn't write He did. And, and, and we should never bow or compromise the truth, should we? The truth is the truth. And we stand on the truth. As Jesus would say again, I am the way, the truth. And using the truth, we try to call back those that are wandering from the truth. I read a quote and, and it didn't give credit to it, but I, I like it. Pastors are not called to be popular, but they're called to be faithful to their calling. A pastor should not conform his message or the word of God to be acceptable by society. Should speak the truth, but always speak the truth in Love. And the fickle crowd is not always going to like it. Did Jesus speak the truth? Yes. And on Sunday they said Hosanna, and on Friday they said crucify Him. The truth is not always going to be popular, but people need to know the truth. And we should always love like a father. Paul loved them like a father. He says, I love you like a father, like I birthed you within this. And he declares his love for them. And, and a love from the heart. In Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, you shall, worship, you shall not worship them, nor serve them, talking about idols, for I, the Lord your God, note, am a jealous God. That's a loving God. But visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, third and fourth generations. God loves you with a jealous love, but he's going to punish you. I heard this week about a sheriff that was talking about some recent shootings. And I love his position. Because as he depicted a 12-year-old that was part of the shooting, he says, we failed that 12-year-old. As a society, we failed that 12-year-old. Because we stopped holding him accountable. We didn't love him. We need to love our kids enough to hold them accountable and speak the truth. Not tell them what they want to hear. Tell them what they need to hear. In love, of course. What if they don't like it? Well, I don't like medicine. I don't like getting a shot. But sometimes it's the best. Years ago, I was in a hospital emergency room, and I was having some bone set in my wrist that I broke. And I looked across the room, and there was this young girl that had broke her arm. It's a pretty bad break. I just had a little break. She had a bad break. And there was three docs and a nurse that were in there, and they had to reset it. Have you ever been around anybody that's had a bone reset? This little girl, I felt so bad. She was in pain as they grabbed and they they were rearranging this arm that, that had almost a ninety degree angle to it. But they had to reset it. Why? Because if they don't reset it, there's no blood flow, and if there's no blood flow, it dies. They gave her some medication, but it's not going to be enough. And she screamed. They said it's going to hurt. But then it's going to get better. And sometimes the truth will hurt. But sharing the truth so that they will heal is important. We share the gospel because we want them to be healed. And we should not compromise that. And Paul does. And again, he's begging. The last thing that Paul mentions in this part of this letter is the analogy of, of the difference between bond and free, just so that it would sink in. Verses 21 all the way to 5.1, he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it's written, Abraham had two sons, and one by a bondwoman and one by a free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. It's important to note that. But the son of the free was born through a promise. Now, this is allegorically speaking, these two women, two covenants, One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are are to be slaves, and she is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout for you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Note, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. And so then, brethren, we are not children of bondwomen, but of free. So what does Paul do? In his last teaching, he says... Let's go back to the Old Testament and take a look at this. Abraham was given a promise. You're going to have a son. Going to be a great nation. Abraham in his flesh says, God, you need a little help. You're taking a long time. Sarah can't have kids. Abraham and Sarah, they have this conversation. Sarah says, take my maiden Hagar, have a kid with her. Let's help God out. Question, does God need help? Nope. Nope, he doesn't. But in his flesh and in his reasoning, this great man of faith, Abraham, and you can read about it in Genesis 16 to 18, struggled with his flesh and in his flesh tried to add to God's promise. So he has a child with Hagar named Ishmael. Ishmael would have 12 sons. Ishmael is the foundation of the Arab nation. Bad news. You ever wonder where the, 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 the fight between the Arab and the Jews came? Here. Because the Arabs believe that they're the inheritors of the Abrahamic promise. Hagar was a slave. Abraham had a son with a slave woman. Producing a slave child. Not the heir of the promise. God said, no. You messed up. You're going to have a child with Sarah. Sarah took some time. They have a child named Isaac. The child of the promise. Paul says, look it. You are not a child of the slave, but you are a child of the free and the child of the promise. You've got to understand that God gave to Abraham this promise, a holy seed, and he needed to wait for that and to do it God's way. The challenge is, which promise? way do we honor God. Paul in Romans four, eighteen to twenty one says, In hope and against hope he, being Abraham, believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which has been spoken. So your descendants will be without the coming in weakened flesh, contemplated in his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God he did not waver in unbelief grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured of what God had promised he was able also to perform. Abraham had to work past the issues of his flesh, realize his failure, and at a hundred years of age, have a relationship with Sarah and have a kid. That's an old, old dad. But how did he do it? Faith in the promise. How do we believe We believe in the promise and receive the promise of God not to be back under slavery within this. Ishmael was given this land of the the east, sent out. The Israelites were to be given this promised land, Jerusalem. Mount Sinai, says Hagar, is Mount Sinai. That's the law. Sarah, Jerusalem, land of promise. So I'll leave you with this. You have a choice. Do you want to live under the bondage of the law and try to work your way into God's grace? Or would you rather just be a child of God and say, God, thank you for loving me. It's too much work, and it's a huge failure to try to obey the law and be saved. It's impossible. It's better you just say, God, will you forgive me of my sin? That the law teaches me about. Will you adopt me as your child? And God says, I was waiting for you to ask. Yes. I will forgive you. I will receive you. I will fill you with my spirit. And you will be my child. And you will receive all the blessings and inheritance as a child of God. So then what should I do? cast out all of those works that you think you have to do. Paul says, just like the slave was cast out, you cast out all of those things. Every time Satan comes in and says, you need to work your way in, say, no I don't, I'm saved by grace. You're not doing enough good works. I don't have to. I'm saved by grace. You're not loved enough by God. Oh yeah, I am, I'm a child of God. Don't get sucked into the lies. Believe the truth. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you give to us a hope and a future. The promises of your word. The security of your presence and the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray for those that are in this room and those that are watching online. As we covered a lot of information. May it sink into their hearts. Lord, I pray if anyone here cannot say tonight. I am a child of God. That they would very simply say, God, I realize I'm a sinner. And I need to be saved. God, I realize I need to be forgiven. Will you forgive me? God, I want to know you as my daddy. Will you fill me with your spirit and adopt me as your child? And Jesus, will you be the Lord of my life? You pray that prayer. And you believe it in your heart. Welcome to the family of God. Let's stand and close.
1: You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so I could stand and sing. I am a child of God. You split the sea so